one of the objections that maybe you've heard from people in our world about Christianity is, you know, Christians, they just hate people who are LGBTQ+. Or maybe you've heard people in our culture say, yeah, I don't subscribe to God's sexual ethic. You know, it's just too, it's just too narrow. Um, how do we lean into some of those conversations? So we've got a familiar face, special guest going to share uh, about sexuality this morning. Let's give an even warmer Winter Conference welcome to Pastor Adam. <laughs> hey, that was better. That was, that was better. better. Yes. As long as it's better than Andrew's, that's, that's all I care about. So, so I'm sure you've already realized um, that your conference schedule that says the topic we're covering is sexuality and the problem of evil are two topics. Uh, sexuality is not the problem of evil. Uh, if you thought that, um, then, then we really need this talk, actually, when we engage people outside. Uh, good morning. Um, it's exciting to be with all of you. I get to sometimes be with young adults, uh, not on Mondays, because that's when we have one-way club at Merrill, so, uh, but I get to be with you for things like this. Uh, for the camp out this last summer. Uh, always awesome time spending uh, sometimes talking and learning with all of you. Um, I'm going to pray, and then we are going to talk about sex. So let me just pray. Our Father in heaven, uh, we need you right now as we think about sexuality uh, and your sexual ethic that you have given us in Scripture. I pray that each one of us would not only think better, but... Um, that we'd be able to engage people better uh, for your sake, for your glory, for the gospel. Uh, Father, be with us right now, we pray. Uh, help us to all learn and be more Christ-like in our thoughts, our actions, and our conversations. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, we are at Engage. Uh, we're talking about engaging people on some top issues that turn them away from Christianity. Um, and you just heard about one of the big ones, the problem of evil. We're going to turn to another one, the problem uh, that many people see with the Christian sexual ethic. Um, and today, uh, we're going to divide that into two sections I'm going to talk about in just a little bit. Now, one of the privileges I have is right after this during lunch, uh, I get to be part of a panel discussion about race uh, and racism as well. And if there are two things that just are so exciting and easy to talk about uh, in our charged and divided culture is sex and race. So I'm excited. Um, honestly, I'm actually a little bit intimidated. Uh, it's intimidating a little bit because we all have opinions and some of us have some very strong opinions uh, about these different topics. Um, and if we're coming together, together to think better or differently uh, about these topics, one of the things that's implied in that is that we don't think quite right or we think wrongly on some of these topics. That feels a little bit dangerous as I think about it. I've read the Bible. I know what happens when the prophets poke around in the personal lives and opinions of people. They got stoned. And although I don't see any rocks lying around, so I feel a little bit safer today, it's worth uh, being honest about. If we engage people on these topics, they may wish they could stone you. They may wish that they could crucify you. Talking about these things and believing something can be dangerous, but one of the things we want to do is to make sure our convictions, our thoughts, our beliefs are the dangerous part and maybe not contribute to that in the way that we interact with others. You probably heard it before. Christianity, the cross is offensive enough and Christians don't need to add to it. 
Well, one of the things I hope as we think about sexuality is that we don't add to the offensiveness of God's sexual ethic to others. So we're going to lean into this dangerous topic of sexuality uh, in just a moment. Before uh, I do that, I always like to offer three caveats when, we t- when I talk about sexuality with, with people. The first one is the Bible is not a sexuality textbook. Far too often people have treated the Bible as a weapon, a club to beat people over the head about their sexual sin. And to be clear, the Bible does talk about sexual sin. It talks about it enough, and it is the authority on the topic. But first and foremost, we have to remember the Bible is a story. It's God's story of redemption, how he is bringing people, he's reconciling sinful humanity to himself through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of his son, Jesus. And so we should ask ourselves when we bring our neighbors to the Bible on a topic like sexuality, are they hearing a story that says, God could never love a sexual sinner like me? Or are they hearing the story as it is, that Jesus came to take our sexual sin and brokenness so that we might have the righteousness of God? So first and foremost, the Bible is no sexuality textbook or weapon. It is our authority on the topic. Uh, but it is the story of God's redemption and love, first and foremost. Second, this, when we talk about sexuality, this isn't purely theoretical. Uh, when we discuss sexuality today, we're discussing something that is personal for each one of us. It impacts us. So we don't have the luxury to think about this topic purely academically or theoretically because what the Bible teaches is going to impact how we use our own bodies. It's going to impact how we live out our sex lives. It's going to inform our reproductive decisions. It is going to touch our, some of our deepest desires for love and intimacy. And that's because sexuality is important. And so I know if there's anyone here today or in our church or the churches that you come from who struggle to accept God's sexual ethic, it doesn't come from a position of irreverence or trying to take the easy way out, but rather comes from the fact that sex is powerful. It's important. It's a big part of who we are. And so I try to hold these two things in tension. I know that God is the kindest, most generous, compassionate, holy and good and wise one who's ever existed, and his way will critique my way. And I try to hold that intention with the fact that his critique, it's going to hurt. It's going to cost. It's going to impact my life. But that the invitation that God holds out of his love is worth it. He promises to never forsake us. He promises to help us as we work this out together. And third caveat This isn't even part of what I'm teaching yet today. These are just caveats. Leaning into God's design for sexuality should never puff us up. It should never puff Christians up, but rather it should lead us to repentance. I think sometimes Christians feel puffed up. They feel good about themselves when we are attracted to the right person, when we've never physically stepped out on a spouse, or if we can cite all of the thou shalt not passages in the scripture. It sometimes leads us to think we've got it all put together. But Jesus shows everyone, gay, straight, and otherwise, that we don't have it all put together. If you're a human, you're sexually broken. If you're a human, then you've been touched by the fall. All parts of creation are impacted by sin. Jesus said 
You who is without stone, you cast the first stone. Jesus said, if you think lustfully in your head, you've committed adultery in your heart. And most often, Scripture talks about adultery, adultery in the fact that we have stepped out on a faithful God to pursue idols. And so, as we think about sexuality and engage our neighbors, uh, we need to remember that we are all spiritual adulterers. We've stepped out on God. We're all broken. We all have sin in this regard, but we are mending, being mended by grace. We need to tell the good news that Jesus came into the world to save sexually broken people like me. And so with these three caveats in mind, I want to tell you how we're going to spend our time together. Pastor Sam already told you uh, the two main objections. This is what he wrote me in an email. He said, I want to provide our young adults with some practical tools to engage others in conversations, specifically those who would say, I'm not a Christian because the sexual ethic of Christians is too restrictive, and I'm not a Christian because Christians hate LGBTQ people. And so these are the two objections I'm going to lean in. We're going to spend a little bit more on the first, a little bit uh, briefer on the second. Um, but for those who would say the Christian sexual ethic is too restrictive, I want to uh, consider some of the actual objections behind the objection that most people have in their mind. So Christianity, some people would say, is far too restrictive regarding sex. And behind that objection is the idea that Christianity is against gay marriage. Uh, its teaching says no to premarital sex. Polygamy is a no-go. God speaks against transgenderism, bisexuality, and open marriage. And there are probably other restrictions as well. But we need to recognize truth when truth is told. God's design for sexuality is even more restrictive than that. The Christian sexual ethic has always been restrictive. It's always been viewed restrictive, even from the very beginning, when Roman uh, husbands were told they need to love their wives sacrificially, when husbands were told by the Christian sexual ethic that they need to be concerned about pleasing their wives, or that men should exercise self-control in all areas of sexuality. If we could go back to Roman time when Christianity started emerging, we, it would be hard for us to imagine how restrictive this would have sound, sounded like considering all the voices in that culture. But the truth is, if we're being honest and if we want to engage non-Christians on a topic like this, we can help them understand and understand ourselves that all people believe in sexual restrictions. All people believe in some sort of sexual restrictions. And the question we need to ask is why? Why do people believe that there needs to be sexual restrictions? And I want to propose two reasons. We're going to look at this in two different ways. First, people generally believe that people are important. People generally believe that people have value. And second, People generally believe that sex has a purpose. So people are important, sex has purpose. So if we asked a non-Christian neighbor about sexual relationships with children or rape or sex slavery, they would probably believe that there needs to be some sort of sexual restrictions. These are evil things, and generally we all agree that these are evil. We can praise God for that. This is held, at least in our society, because people believe in some sort of human dignity or some sort of human equal rights. Now, we don't have time to go into the fact that this 
common belief of human rights actually comes from Christ himself in our culture, and you can't assume that in all places of the world. But most of the people that we will engage in our culture believe that it's wrong to treat people as cattle or use them as objects. You can't sexually do whatever you want because people matter. People are important. And that is a common ground that we can engage our neighbors on when we talk about sexuality. The second reason that most non-Christians would agree in some sort of sexual restriction is because they believe sex has purpose. Now, Science, I, I googled what's the, the purpose of sex and I got all kinds of scientific reasons. It's good for physical health, emotional health, uh, it's good for your health and they give these very scientific reasons but I don't generally think people engage in sexual relationships because they're trying to shoot for some physical or emotional exercise. I just don't see that happening very often. Rather, Christian and non-Christian engage in sexual relationships because of love and romance, bringing people together. It's a way to love and be loved. It's a way to express some of our deepest parts of who we are with another person. And despite what may seem to the contrary, there's been a growing belief in our culture that adultery is wrong. Over the last few decades, while approval for same-sex marriage has increased rapidly, approval for adultery has gone down. That's because sex has purpose. It's important, and increasingly people believe that it shouldn't be just given away for any reason, but rather used in a committed romantic relationship. And generally, this is a common ground we can engage even non-Christians on. I think we could say, in general, all people believe in some sort of sexual restrictions because most people believe People matter, and sex has purpose. But when we turn and think about the Christian perspective, we will see that God believes in sexual restrictions too. More, if we're honest. And the question we need to ask again is why? We need to help others consider why. And I want to submit to you these two reasons. First, God believes people are more important than we do. And God believes sexuality has purpose, more purpose, because he designed it to have purpose. To address these two things, I want to present uh, a positive biblical theology of sexuality. If you were at the, my breakout at the young adult campout, this is the Cliff Notes version, so bear with me. Uh, it's something I know I needed to hear over and over again, so I hope it will be helpful. But I want to go through the big story of the Bible through four phases but I want to start with Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. This is, I believe, the passage all uh, discussions about sexuality eventually has to pass through. Ephesians 5, 31 through 32. Paul writes, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. The purpose, Paul says, of intergendered marriage from the beginning, designed by God, was to be a tiny picture of God's love for his people, specifically a parable of Christ and his church. And that parable only works when sexuality is lived out the way that God designed it. More than intergendered, it's to be sacrificial, it's to be exclusive, it's to be lasting, and even more that we find in Scripture. 
And I think we can see this and understand this ourselves and therefore be better prepared to engage others on it when we think about how this plays out in the big story of the Bible. Because at the beginning of the Bible, it starts with the first marriage between the first created man and woman, and the story ramps up and points to the ultimate marriage of heaven and earth, of Christ and his bride in the last chapters of the Bible. And so we see this massive story, and marriage is one of the lenses that God gives us to understand it. So I mentioned four phases of the story that I want to cover. The first one that we're going to look at is this, it has this claim that God is an other-oriented God. God is an other-oriented God. Over the centuries, Christians have looked at the Bible and discovered that God himself is both other and same. God himself has diversity and unity within himself. He is three and at the same time one. That's where we get the idea of the Trinity from. And for eternity past, God has been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Where the Father has always loved the Son and the Spirit, the Son has always loved the Father and the Spirit, and the Spirit has always loved the Father and the Son. God has, even in himself, always loved the other. He has always been an other-oriented God who has loved across difference. And I think this is why the Christian, why we can uniquely claim that God is love. Because before God created anything else, he always has loved the other. But even after God created the universe and humanity and all of this, we see it play out in how he's interacted with the world. The Father sent the Son and sends the Spirit to have them worship and to reveal their glory. The Son came and he said, look at my Father. If you've seen me, then you know the Father. And it's good for me to go away because then the Spirit will come. And when the Spirit came, he shined the spotlight on Jesus Christ. He does that for each one of us. He empowers us to cry out, Abba, Father, and worship the Father in the Son by his enabling. And so God has revealed himself always as an other-oriented God, a God who loves across difference. And at the very beginning of the Bible, we see that God chose to extend this other-oriented love to yet a new other. He created humanity not because he was lonely or lacking, but because that's just who he is. Out of the love the Father and the Son and the Spirit had for one another, God speaks forward creation. And one of the things we see from the beginning in phase two in this biblical theology is God created humanity other-oriented. God created humanity other-oriented to be a tiny picture of his other-oriented love. I'm sure you'll recall God made humanity in his image. He made humanity male and female. Now ask yourself this question, why didn't God just make generic human beings? Why did he make male human beings and female human beings? There's examples, right, in the world of creatures who reproduce asexually. God certainly could have made humans this way, but he chose to make a male human and a female human that together image God. God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. And I think this is because within humanity, God designed otherness and sameness, diversity and unity. It's a tiny picture of himself. And so after Adam wakes up from that deep sleep, you'll remember in Genesis 2, 
he sees Eve for the first time and he recognizes one who is different than him. So he calls her woman. But he also recognizes one who is same as him, flesh of his flesh, bone of his bone. And the next verse says it clear. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. And they become one flesh. The same word one is used to describe God himself elsewhere. We see two become one. We see diversity with unity, otherness and sameness. So in humanity itself, you have this tiny picture of what God is like. But you also have a picture of how God loves. That God is an other-oriented God in his love. That he loves across difference. And you see this. Throughout the Old Testament, God often portrays himself as the faithful husband who pursues his often unfaithful wife, Israel. And so God reveals himself as the husband who pursues people. Even before Christ, we have these glimpses that human marriage is supposed to point to and be a picture of how God loves others, how he loves humanity. People who are at the same time like God, created in his image, and yet qualitatively different than him. We are creatures, not creator. God created humanity to be a picture of his other-oriented love. He created male and female to provide this little picture. Love that loves across differences, that pursues the well-being of one who is not like you. But... In the next phase, we see that sin made human beings self-oriented. Sin made human beings self-oriented. It made us turn inward to love ourselves most of all. Now, here's a question the Bible doesn't explicitly answer, uh, but it's worth thinking about. The Bible says that once Adam and Eve sinned, they felt shame, they realized they were naked, and they covered themselves. I want to ask you, what parts do you think they covered the Bible doesn't answer this, but I think we all can guess what Adam and Eve covered. Uh, you see it in every children's book ever made about Adam and Eve. They covered what made them different from each other. They covered their genitals. You see it, in, like I said, in every children's book, and immediately you see the sadness of sin. The diversity within humanity that is part of what makes human, humanity beautiful and good that makes humanity a tiny picture of God's love, became a source of shame. They hid from one another. They hid from God. Humanity became primarily self-centered, protecting self, defending self, ultimately loving self instead of other. Sin made humanity self-oriented, turning away from God and turning away from other. And I think this is what Paul is getting at in Romans 1. I think he makes it quite explicit as we think about it. In verse 25, Paul writes this. They, he's referring to all humanity, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Humanity turned away from God and put something else in his place. That's the definition of idolatry. And because of this break in the vertical relationship, he goes on to say it broke the horizontal relationships as well. Verse 26 continues, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. That means God stopped restraining them. He gave them over to their self-oriented path of destruction that leads away from God. And that's incredibly terrifying. When God hands us over to sin, 
That is terrifying. But the passage continues. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Now, we need to be clear, because Paul is not talking about same-sex attraction. He's talking about same-sex behavior. We also need to make sure we're understanding his logic. Paul says because of the break here in the vertical relationship, the horizontal relationships became those that reflected that same brokenness. Instead of a man and a woman enjoying sex in an exclusive marriage covenant to enact this parable of God's other-oriented love, the natural God-designed relationships were abandoned, it says, for same-sex relationships. The parable no longer works in these relationships. Now, we need to be clear, same-sex relationships are still a parable, but at best they image a God who is self-oriented, who keeps his love for himself, who doesn't extend love towards humanity. It doesn't reflect an other-oriented God. Now, God could have certainly done it this way. He would have been completely just in not sharing his love with the other, us in this instance, because God knows we have not loved God in the same way as the way he has or has loved for eternity past in the Trinity. But that's what makes this next phase of God's story so radical. Because at the depths of human rebellion and sin, God displayed that he is another oriented God as he moved towards broken humanity. God loved to cross the difference, and that brings us to phase four of this theology. The gospel has freed us to be other-oriented again. The gospel has freed us to be other-oriented again. Jesus came, who is God, to display what other-oriented love looks like towards humanity. And as a man, Jesus displayed what perfect love towards God and other looks like. Because Jesus is the image of God. He is the exact representation of who God is. And when Jesus went to the cross, he did so not only to pardon us, but to give us power. He became sin so that we might have the righteousness of God. He came to pardon people, but he also came to give us power. Because we know that Christ has enabled us to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. In healing the vertical relationship, Christ has freed us to heal in the horizontal relationships we have with others. We've been given the power through Christ by the Spirit to be other-oriented in our love again. And this is the big story that is meant to be reflected in human marriage. This is the big picture of God's other-oriented love, and it makes us come full circle back to Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. I'm talking about Christ and the church. And so the reason God is restrictive about sexuality is... Because he cares deeply about humanity. He is a God who has revealed himself as an other-oriented God. A God who will love us across the difference. And that's good news for each one of us. Because in this picture, we are the other. We are the other one that God loves. 
but he also cares deeply about sex because from the beginning, its purpose has to, been, to be a tiny picture of Christ's own love for his bride, the church. And so I think when we see this big story of the Bible and how sexuality is related to it, it becomes a little easier to see why God cares about sexuality enough to guard it, to restrict it, to keep it. Because as we engage our neighbors about sexuality, we're engaging them with the gospel. So if someone asks me, how should I engage my gay, transgender, bisexual, or even straight neighbors on the Christian sexual ethic, I say, engage them with the gospel. Never stop telling them the gospel because God's design of sexuality from the beginning was to point towards the one that loves our neighbor more than anyone could. And I think that it's only once we've been captured by his love that we can start moving towards right thinking in a topic like this. Now I want to make a side note before I move on to the second objection. And the side note is about being single. Because uh, many in this room are probably single, myself included. And I believe in the New Testament, the reason Paul can say that it is better to remain single than to marry is because human marriage is but just a picture of that great marriage between heaven and earth, between Jesus and his church. And so if you're a Christian, you have been brought into the marriage the marriage that you already have by faith, the marriage that human marriage is but a tiny picture of. And so by faith, you have been brought into the real thing. So if God has given you singleness, the gift of singleness in this season, then use it to point to Christ. If he changes that or you are married and he gives you the gift of marriage, then use that to point others to Christ in your marriage. So I want to more briefly now move on to the second objection that Pastor Sam emailed me about, that Christians hate LGBTQ plus people. One speaker I heard said that 95%, more than 95% of gay people who have left the church say they left because of how they were treated and not because of theological differences. If that statistic is even remotely true, then there is probably a lot of truth in the objection from our LGBTQ neighbors that some Christians hate them. I want to say, may that never be true of us. May we repent if we've ever contributed to that hatred. In seminary, one of my counseling classes was about human sexuality, and every year the professor assigned a, a similar assignment, a paper on homosexuality. And he shared with our class that just several years before we had to do the assignment, he shared how he actually started to hate this paper and hated reading the papers that seminarians were turning in. And just a few years before we had to write it, he planned on canceling the assignment. It just served no good purpose. Now, he decided to cancel that assignment right around the time that gay marriage was legalized in our country, and he shared how in the last year that that was supposed to be assigned, something started to change. There was a major shift in the papers coming in, and it led him to actually continue the assignment. He says now this is his favorite assignment each year to read. He can't wait to read all the papers turned in. But he said... What changed was not Christians' theological commitments or their views on gender, sexuality, or marriage. Rather, students started thinking deeper 
and better and more compassionately on the topic. And I think we see this reflected in the church more broadly today. I think some of the best work on gender, sexuality, and marriage have come out in the last five or six years. So that it's coming out right now. And I think that this partially implies that in the past, we maybe haven't done the best job. I'm actually very hopeful and optimistic about the future of the church in this realm because the shift in our society has confronted the church uh, with a, a position that the previous generation hasn't had to think about as much. It has assumed in the past that everyone is on the same page on these topics, but I think we should see this as a new opportunity to think more carefully and biblically about sexuality, to make sure we can articulate our beliefs a little better and show the world why Jesus is the one that defines sexuality uh, and that he is the one our hearts are actually longing for. And so I want to make three suggestions to close out this talk and I'm not sure where we are in time. Maybe we'll have time for questions. But the first suggestion I want to make is that we need to increase in loving engagement in our LGBTQ uh, communities. We need to increase in loving engagement. We can and should be friends, have conversations with, and engage with our LGBTQ neighbors. Now, one objection I sometimes hear is that I don't want to support their choices or condone their lifestyle, but if engaging LGBTQ neighbors somehow makes us complicit in sin, then none of us are saved because our salvation depends on the sinless sacrifice of Christ on the cross, and if engaging and being friends with sinner makes you a sinner, then Jesus wasn't sinless when he went to the cross. Not to mention, we couldn't be friends because I'm guessing you, like me, are a sinner. Christians can and should be friends across these differences. People with different opinions will find Christians have different opinions on these matters. Friendship doesn't make one complicit. Holding back your opinion can be a a demonstration of love. And other-oriented love is at the very heart of what Christians are called to do. And one of the ways we can do this is to lean into and learn the lingo and the terminology. Some people will say, I'm same-sex attracted or I'm gay, and they could mean one of several different things. You'll hear of many labels, bisexual, transgender, sides A, side B, side C, in this conversation that Christians have about same-sex attraction. Let's lean into these terms, understand them so we can engage and talk uh, to our neighbors better. And also... We want to earn the right to speak truth into our friends and our neighbor's life, but not have that as our first and primary goal. I think rather we should have as our first and primary goal to show love, to show support, to build friendship, and then maybe the trust will grow to the point where we have a platform to speak truth. So the first thing I want to encourage us to do, we should increase in loving engagement to our LGBTQ neighbors, those who disagree with the sexual ethic, and it's okay to be friends. It's okay to have anyone in all these circles be a big part of our friendship and our life. Second, I think we need to increase in loving humility and honesty because we're all sexually broken people in a battle to be more like Christ. I think our honesty and humility will not only make us more patient, 
but it will allow us to see that all people come to the cross on equal footing. If we grow in humility and honesty about our own sexual brokenness, then we won't present a lie to the world that says, we have it all figured out, come and live out sexuality like us. Rather, we can present the truth. You've got problems, we've got them too. Let's hold each other up and walk side by side as we pursue Christ's likeness together. There is no depth or darkness that Christ can't pull us out of, and we come to him broken, lacking, and dead, but he heals, he supplies, he gives life. So let's do something a little uncomfortable. Look to the person on your left. Very few head movement. Let's try it to the right. Look to the person on your right. Now look to the person up on stage. We are all sexually broken people. We're in a battle to be more Christ-likeness, but because we've been given the spirit of Christ, we are in a battle that we can win together. The last thing I want to suggest before we close is that we should increase, we should foster loving community. We should be, as the church, the most loving community in the world, period. Rebecca McLaughlin, she's a great author I would commend to all of you. Uh, She's informed, she's biblical, she's compassionate when it comes to talking about marriage, sexuality, and gender. But one of the things she points out is that the LGBTQ plus community is one of the most accepting and loving communities in our society. Often people who've been mistreated by family and friends or the church have found in them a community they could only dream existed. The LGBTQ community is seen as the place where you can experience love and family and acceptance with people who are not biologically related to you, a place where family happens. And one of the quotes that Rebecca said that really stuck with me, she said this, friends, that should be a distinctive of the church. If someone leaves a gay relationship in order to become a Christian, they should find more love here, not less. She also said, I think all of us, married or single, same-sex attracted or entirely opposite-sex attracted, whatever our age, whatever our stage, all of us will benefit if we actually start taking Christian ethics seriously when it comes to how we should love each other. And I want to encourage you, I see this in young adults. I see this type of loving community right here before me. I think young adults is a very wonderful example of a loving community like this. I see a big group. I see little groups that have formed family bonds across unrelated ties with people not related to you. I see the love that you guys have fostered. And I want to encourage you that this might be one of the greatest ways to engage people who struggle with God's sexual ethic. I want to encourage you that you can leverage it if the opportunity presents itself and bring people in to experience a love that I hope they can't find anywhere else, the love of Christ for them. And so I just want to encourage you, this right here, young adults and the, the families and groups you have formed, is one of the best ways to engage people who struggle with God's design for sexuality. So those are my my closing three thoughts and suggestions on how to engage people who think the sexual ethic of Christians is too restrictive. It is very restrictive, let's be honest, but let's ask why. Why does God believe in protecting and restricting uh, sexuality? And second, uh, when people claim that we hate LGBTQ people, 
let's prove them wrong. Let's be a community that loves deeper and, and wider than anyone else. So let me pray, and then I don't know if we have a couple minutes for some questions. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you recognizing that none of us have this all figured out. None of us uh, are living according to your sexual ethics and purposes perfectly. But Father, we thank you for the grace you've shown us. We pray that you would continue to grow us in these areas. And Father, we pray that you would use the church, that you would use us to speak truth and to demonstrate love to a world that desperately needs your wisdom, your design, your compassion uh, for us. Father, we know, uh, especially as we've talked about evil, there's so much hurt and so much pain in these realms. Father, we pray that we might show uh, the solution, the healing uh, that is possible by the gospel in this realm. So, Father, help us, we pray. I pray that each one of us would uh, think uh, more compassionately and more truthfully on these topics. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Let's thank Pastor Adam. Questions? Okay. So we have a couple friends that are joining us uh, via live stream this morning, which is great. Um, thankful for Brendan and our tech team uh, that's made that a possibility today. So uh, we have about five minutes to ask Adam a couple of questions. But what I'd like us to do is ask the questions in the microphone. So if you've got a question, just stick your hand in the air. I'll come and put the microphone Maybe not like in your face, but close to your face. You can share your question, um, and then uh, Adam can answer it. I also reserve the right to come get back to you with a better question. I'll try. A better I'll question? Try. A better answer, oh, okay. sorry. Okay, sounds good. Sorry. <clears throat> but yeah, if you have any questions, I'd, I'll try to, try to answer. Here in the front row. Would you go to an LGBTQ wedding, the difference of condoning sure. and friendship or celebrating a new marriage? Yeah. Um, so someone who's actually spoken, I think, most helpfully, actually, I don't know if it was Rebecca McLaughlin. Um, so I think it's really hard to um, answer that question in, in a setting like this to give some type of guidance for all of you because I think if we um, were to poll the room and to ask where our Christian convictions led us, we would have a difference on it. So I want to be um, aware that people are going to come to different positions on something like that. I think um, there's a lot that would go into it. Um, does my, you know, one of the things I've thought about as a pastor, does my um, title or role have a different effect? Does it show, does it represent the church or anything like that? Um, is it a way that can maintain a relationship uh, that would give you the right to speak the gospel or, or truth into um, into someone's life. So I think it's really hard to answer that question in a setting like this, um, but really could be something we individually with other Christians kind of figure out what is right for us. Because if our conscience is violated by attending or not attending, uh, that should be a big part of, of what informs that decision. So it's not a, I don't think there's a, a clear answer on that. I think I heard someone say one in five would, would not ever be comfortable going. Two in five would say it depends, and two in five Christians say they would never be comfortable going. No, would be comfortable going. So I think someone said that somewhere. Any other questions? All right. 
Is that well? a real hand, Maggie? Okay, great. I was, but it was, it was oh. like this. I don't know if that was a, I feel bad no one else is asking questions, so I'm just stick my hand in the air. These are hard questions about preferred pronouns. What do you do? What's your wisdom on preferred pronouns? I don't want to give the exact same answer, but that's what I feel, feel like I'm led to do. Um, I know, like one of the, someone's uh, on staff here uh, said, I thought this was very wise. We, uh, we would ask someone who is telling us they prefer a different pronoun or whatever, um, and say, you know, you don't want us to push you to a place that you're not comfortable with, and this makes me uncomfortable. So I think that'd be a good way to engage it. Um, I think there, for me, as I think through it, and again, this isn't any type of rule or uh, Christian law, because uh, I think conscience is a big part. Pronouns is part of, it reflects part of uh, who God has made us to be. So I have a little bit harder time personally uh, with that. If someone legally changes their name, um, I usually don't have, my conscience isn't violated by using uh, a name that someone prefers. But pronouns, I, I think to demonstrate love and just to maintain the right to speak truth, I personally would probably just avoid pronouns. I've been called hey you or hey guy enough that uh, that's, a, that's a, way, a way for me to avoid it. But, um, but yeah, pronouns reflect gender. Gender is part of how God made us. So, um, But I also recognize that we will probably have different opinions in a room like this, uh, depending on how, we, um, how our conscience is leading us on these things. So, yeah. Okay, I have a question. Okay. Pastor Adam. So you have somebody come into your office. Um, and he is dating, close to getting engaged. And, you know, through the course of your conversation, it's clear that he and his girlfriend are sleeping together, but would say, eh, you know, it's just not that big of a deal. You know, we're married in God's eyes. Like, what would you, what would you say? Yeah. Well, I think I would, I'd want to talk about marriage as something God designed and has given Humanity. It's something that we enter into but can't define on our own. Um, and so I just would want to, uh, you know, look at how God has designed marriage and invited humanity to enter into his design and live according to it. Um, I think there is precedent of there being legal, um, a legal recognition of marriage. I don't believe marriage is exclusively a Christian thing. I believe God gave marriage to humanity in general. So I think when we look across the world, some of our brothers and sisters in the church, uh, globally, uh, maybe societally, they're further down the line than we are on gay marriage and stuff like that. Uh, I believe France, for instance, uh, the church has just refused to do wedding ceremonies, but they recognize that the state has... Uh, has the right to issue marriage certificates or does issue marriage certificates to people, and then they celebrate it. And so um, I think if there's not a ceremony, if there's not the legal aspect of it, that, that's part of what I would, I would talk about in that. So, so marriage is something we enter into, enter into God's design, um, and because he cares about it a lot and has designed it for purpose, um, it's important to have his blessing, the blessing of family, and, and to have that as a witness as well. So, yeah. 